even if you're not worried about a cognitive impairment, I think you'll be shocked at your results and how your brain changes depending on what you're eating, um, how much you've slept, how much stress you're under. And so it's a good reminder uh, to all of us to 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 live more consciously. And you can find the Roberto app if you just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big uh, banner on the right-hand side that'll take you to a, a free extended trial um, before you decide to um, subscribe or not. And then, of course, I always love giving a shout-out to Maria Shriver for her women's Alzheimer's movement and her move for mine. She's just so passionate about raising awareness. You've probably seen her on TV because this month is um, all about dementia. And so that's pretty exciting. And she's a uh, just a wonderful person. And if you want to be inspired, read her Sunday paper as well. And then the last I want to shout out to, of course, are um, Tammy and Kathy with Dementia Raw. They have a company called uh, Silver Dawn Training Institute that equips both professionals and and loved ones that are are caring and committed to uh, caring for someone with dementia. And they're just rolling out a brand new online program for caregivers. So you can go and check them out at cdcsdementiaraw.com, cdcsdementiaraw.com. Well, let me introduce our guest today. Um, Dr. Sharon Cohen has been a a dementia trial investigator since 1996, and she is a behavioral neurologist, a speech and language pathologist, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and the director of the Toronto Memory Program, which is Canada's largest center for Alzheimer's clinical trials. She is committed to improving therapeutics in dementia through participation in international treatment trials. And it's just, it's so exciting to have her her with us here today. If there's a clinical trial for Alzheimer's, there's a really good chance that Dr. Cohen and her team are part of it. So welcome to the show today, Dr. Cohen. I'm so, I'm so excited to, to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Laurie. I'm excited and one of your newest fans. I just love what you're doing and I'm really honored to be on the show. Well, it's it's fun. I think it's just important to to get this information out to people. And, you know, one of the questions that I ask everybody who is a guest on the show is, have they been personally touched by dementia? And some have and some haven't. It doesn't make any difference, but it just gives people a little bit more insight um, as to you. So would you mind sharing if you or a family member has been um, touched by dementia or, or maybe uh, a friend, sometimes Front of a family. Yeah, you thank just you never for know. asking. You know, very few of us don't know somebody or you know have someone in their family, uh, you know, w- without Alzheimer's. But um, as you know, I'm an Alzheimer's doctor and have been for a few decades. But it turns out that my late father had Alzheimer's disease, and my mother I'm now caring for, um, both of my grandmothers. So I've seen this disease up close. Um, It's been an honor to look after my family, although it's been heartbreaking as well. And uh, my patients whom I see every day and, uh, you know, try to keep quality of life and spirits high. And, um, yeah, you know, it's it's the full circle view that I've, I've been 
fortunate to have been touched by. Uh, not that I wish this disease on anyone, but I think as a physician, it's good to see the inside story as well. I, I agree. It puts a whole different perspective on it. And I I would imagine, and I'll ask you this question, since you, you have kind of a chain in your family, um, have you or are you considering um, seeing if you have the genes? Um, I have. You know, um, yes, I think that, you know, I and my two siblings, I have a sister and brother, uh, you know, are at higher risk than average for Alzheimer's disease. And I'm the kind of person who's curious and wants to know how to plan for the future. So I have actually had um, various tests and, and will continue to monitor myself. I you know, don't want to be practicing if I'm not capable of practicing. Right now I'm very productive and everything's fine. Um, but yes, the opportunities for anyone, whether it's me or anybody who has a family history of Alzheimer's disease, to get baseline cognitive testing to get clarity about genetic risks, not just that one or two members of the family have or had Alzheimer's disease, but that there are things we can test to get this risk profile for any one individual. And I urge people who are curious to do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I know I get asked that all the time, and I've decided not to do the test just because I, I tell myself that I wouldn't go down the rabbit hole, but I'm like, well, you don't know till you're there. And so, <laughs> yeah, and um, nobody should, there's no right or wrong about this. Uh, you know, people who want information should be um, directed to how they can get it rather than being told there's nothing available, which isn't true. That's part of the problem with this field. There are so many myths and misinformation. But people who don't want to know absolutely should be respected for their decisions. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's good for all of us to to be monitoring our our cognitive health, no matter what no matter yeah. what your decision is. So I thank you for sharing that. That that is um it, it's nice to hear, and I, I appreciate your your openness there. You know, there's so much going on in the research pipeline. I mean, as as an outsider, you know, you just it's kind of like things are bouncing off the walls out there. You don't know what's working or what's not, and um, it reminds me uh, of you know back in the days when bacon was good, bacon was bad. You know, and it was just kind of <laughs> back and forth. With Red wine, things. coffee, yeah, we all go through yeah, cycles, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's you know? true. It's very hard as a layperson to make sense of, of the field, but I can tell you that it is, in fact, an exciting time in Alzheimer's research, and um, there's an increasing investment in Alzheimer's research, which we need. We've always been underfunded and neglected compared with fields like cancer, and, and therefore we've been slower in having any you know breakthroughs, but that will change. There are over 100 different compounds being tested in the clinical trial pipeline and more to come. So before we test things in people, they go through laboratory stages, they go through experimental animals. Sadly, I'm a big animal lover, so I don't like saying that. But once we get to testing in people, there are over 100 compounds right now, very different, one from the other, being tested. So that's not, not a blank slate there. There are more sensitive tools to catch the disease process earlier, so we don't wait until the brain is too injured. That's also exciting. And these sensitive in tools uh, involve things like special scans to detect proteins that can develop even before symptoms of Alzheimer's. We can look at the spinal fluid 
and see some of these markers. Um, and this holy grail of blood-based biomarkers, being able to do a blood test and tell whether you have or will develop Alzheimer's, that isn't quite a reality yet, but a lot of progress is being made. So people may hear about this in the media or, you know, from scientific uh, um, conferences, uh, you know, blurbs that this is coming. And it is very exciting. And we, we might think, oh, it's scary to be able to diagnose so early, but it opens up a huge window of opportunity to prevent the disease. And really, that will be the best way to intervene, to catch the disease before it actually damages the brain. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, I work with so many people with dementia. And so often, you know, years ago, it was, well, they were too young, you know, and they, they didn't meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. And, and now, it, you know, it's just refreshing and scary at the same time to hear that the disease um, can start affecting our brain 10 to 15 years prior to symptoms being, being noticed or recognized in the body. And, and so it, it just, I think makes us all have to pay more attention to what are we doing with our bodies and um, you know, how are we feeling and and just be more in tune and, and open to things because I, I would imagine like with cancer, it can be in our bodies for a long time, not doing anything, but just kind That's of sitting, absolutely right. sitting around. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and, then, and we we don't expect people to stick their heads in the sand and say, oh, it's just a small lump, don't worry about it. We want mm-hmm. to catch it when it's small if it's a lump and it's cancerous. And we need to think the same way about Alzheimer's. You know, a little bit of memory loss, we shouldn't be told, oh, don't worry about it. We should be told, let's check it out. If there's nothing, there's nothing. If there's something more to pursue, let's do that. So I think we are entering an era where there's greater awareness. There's more we can do. We are getting closer to a cure, although I don't have it in my pocket today. I wish I did. Um, But it will come. But we need to stay hopeful, and we need to, as you described, get involved. You know, find out about things, look after your brain, don't, uh, you know, if you're worried about your memory, don't just sit and worry quietly. Uh, do something about it. Exactly. Now, did you just go to the Alzheimer's Association International Conference this year? And, I did go uh, in July. It's one of the biggest international conferences and another one coming up the end of October, yes. Because I've, I've just heard a little here and a little there about um, Band 2401, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that and, and what that is all about. Sure. Band 2401 is the name of an antibody that binds to a protein in the brain called amyloid. Amyloid is the earliest brain change we can identify in people who develop Alzheimer's disease. And in this phase two study, this was a sort of a middle stage study with over 800 people, a reasonable size study, giving people intravenous infusions of band 2401 every two weeks allowed plaque, amyloid plaque, to be completely cleared from the brain on the, the optimal doses. And people did better. The disease was slowed down. So this is, this is huge. So not only are we seeing plaque coming out of the brain, but we're also seeing the important correlates that people's thinking, behavior is better than if they weren't treated compared with those on placebo. And that's what we need. We need to know that the biomarker or the protein is being removed and that people are doing better. So 
depending on which measurements used, there was about a 50% slowing, almost 50% slowing down of Alzheimer's disease. That's very encouraging. Now, this is this band 2401 will need to go into a phase three study where we can confirm these results in a larger group of individuals with Alzheimer's disease. But um, it's certainly on our radar now to to follow what happens with this uh, compound. Wow, that that is very encouraging. Um, you know, one of the questions I'm going to ask, because, you know, I've heard of studies where, you know, they they talk about the amyloid plaque, and, and then, on the other hand, they said there's been studies where some people have had symptoms and haven't had any plaque. But do we really know what causes dementia? I mean, there's so many different variables of it as well. Yeah, it's a good question. So dementia has many causes, and the commonest cause as we get older, so not in, not in uh, young people, but in older people, the commonest cause is Alzheimer's disease. And by definition, Alzheimer's disease requires the presence of amyloid plaque. So amyloid is a necessary change in the brain in Alzheimer's. There are other changes that happen as well. So people who we think have Alzheimer's disease, they're progressively more forgetful and you know, maybe 70 years old and they, they seem like they have Alzheimer's. If they don't have amyloid plaque in the brain, then it's something else. I'm not saying it's not a dementia of one kind or other, but it's not Alzheimer's disease. And we realize that being able to assess for the amyloid protein is very important because what we've thought is Alzheimer's disease in the past is not always correct. And if we have a treatment that can lower amyloid and improve how people are doing, we want to use that sensibly. We don't want to give that treatment to people who don't have amyloid because that doesn't make sense that they would benefit from that. Okay. So the well, that, getting that, more sophisticated, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Now, um, you know, there's been so many failures um, in terms of, of research and clinical sti- um, studies that are being done out there. And I know I, when I talk with people, they get really down, but I'm a firm believer that mm-hmm. there is no such thing as failure. It just brings us cl- one step closer to an end result that we're looking for. Um, you know, it's a learning tool. How, how, do, you, how do you look at the, the so-called failures? Yeah, no, it's a very important question. And I think, you know, as a human being, I get discouraged when things don't go the way we want it. But in clinical trials, you know, each study is designed to answer a specific question. Does this drug at this dose work at this stage of disease? And if a trial is well constructed, the trial won't fail. It will give us a clear answer, yes or no. The compound may fail. We may say, okay, well, that one's not worth continuing with. But the results of the study will allow us to build the next study and the study after that. And eventually, only you know a small percentage of drugs being tested in any therapeutic area will cross the finish line. In cancer medicine, about 10% of you know 100 drugs, 10 will cross the finish line. So we don't expect all of these studies to be uh, successful as far as the compound. But without these failed studies, we wouldn't know where to go next. In Alzheimer's disease, it's been such a complicated disease and the brain's been such a mystery that our success rate's even lower than in cancer. It's more like 1%. And we, we need these trials to get done uh, and more quickly. 
but absolutely there's no there's no way around clinical trials. This is the the route to success, and that will come. Okay, great. Now, I heard you you guys recently invited people um, back to the clinic for a celebration who were part of your band twenty four oh one trial, and I, I, I've not heard of that before. Um, why did that no, happen? It's, why did... Uh, it's a new way of doing research. We. Um, <laughs> really wanted to honor people who participated in studies, not just the study participants, but their families. We invited pets and dogs as well. We felt that these people who were courageous and dedicated their time and energy and let us poke them and scan them and test them uh, really deserve some recognition. Not only did they contribute valuable data to what might be a next you know, approved Alzheimer's treatment, Band 2401. We don't know yet, but the trial that they were in was successful and will lead to the Phase 3, Band 2401. But we wanted to to really honor their spirit of giving because they participated not just for themselves, but for their families and for others, next generations, for people they don't even know. And And this is really what a medical hero is made of. So we held a luncheon for them. We invited them and their families. It was a fantastic event. Our pharmacy coordinator and our director of operations and our investigators, our physicians, we all served them lunch. We're not as good at being servers as we are at being research staff, but we did our best, and it was a lot of fun. (laughs) And we awarded them and just recognized them individually for their participation. And I think this really... um, uh, was very successful and made us realize we should be doing this a whole lot more often. And it doesn't have to be that a trial has come to fruition or even been successful. Some of these trials are two, three years, and maybe annually we should have an event to honor all our research participants. I think it's very important. I don't think they get enough recognition. I, I tend to agree with you, you know, and I hear from so many trials out there, you know, they're struggling getting people to be involved, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you can get to be relationship-based with them and and really make them feel a sense of belonging, uh, I, I think that's missing from our society as a whole, but when it comes to the world of dementia, um, their worlds can become very, very small, and they're making a, a huge huge contribution to, to pushing things forward and, and making the world a better place. So I, I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful tool and technique to to help um, not only lift them and encourage them to continue, but to talk about it with other people that, you know, when you're, when you're appreciated, you tell people about that, you know, mm-hmm. your experience, that kindness. And, you know, it, that's uh, much better than, oh, it failed. You know, and explaining, even mm-hmm. if it does fail, we still appreciate you. We 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 still learned, you know, from this experience. Okay. And, and letting you know what we learned in lay terms, you know, rather than them finding out somebody attended a conference and their study was mentioned. And, you know, it's just so impersonal the way people find out results when they themselves contributed the data. So, yeah, yeah I couldn't agree with you more. People need to feel valued. And these folks are really doing their part. Yeah, and I I think it goes, um, when I go out and speak, I talk a lot about the the corrective model versus the compassionate model and, um, you know, kind of corrective care, this is right, this is wrong, and, 
you know, it, it doesn't have to be just right or wrong. There are lessons learned throughout all of life, and we still have to appreciate and value um, those that we're working with. And, and I just think it, I, don't, I, just, I just think it's a, a brilliant idea, and I'd like to see more of that happening. Um, I, I think you'll you'll get richer studies. I think you'll get more people involved, and um, will really help push things forward. And I loved how you called them medical heroes. Uh, because they truly mm-hmm. are. They truly are. I so agree. kudos, kudos to more. you guys. Now, you guys are seeing <laughs> more, more, pe- more and more people being interested in clinical trials that, you know, um, will hopefully prevent Alzheimer's. And one of these studies um, is, is just a cheek swab. Can you tell people about that one? Sure. Well, first of all, we are blown away by the interest of healthy individuals to learn whether they may be at risk for Alzheimer's disease, and if they are, their willingness to participate in a prevention study. So maybe mom mm-hmm. or dad has had Alzheimer's or they've had some minor forgetfulness themselves, but they're basically cognitively healthy individuals, no diagnosis of, of dementia or you know, substantial memory impairment, and yet they are willing to come forward and say, can I be part of the solution for this disease? So with a, a simple cheek swab, a painless, non-invasive test, it's sort of like a Q-tip and you brush the inside of the cheek, we collect DNA that we take back to the clinic, run through a machine, and we can um, analyze for a risk factor gene for Alzheimer's disease. And then we contact people who have this risk factor gene and invite them to come in, learn their results, and participate in a study. Uh, and because this particular risk factor gene is called APOE, and the, the type is APOE4, occurs in only about uh, 2% of the population as two copies of E4, and as one copy of E4, which is also a risk but not as high a risk, in about 25% of the, the population. We go into the community. We ask people to be part of the solution. They come forward. We've had hundreds of people now come line up for a cheek swab and you know it turns into sort of a, a cheek swab party and I don't say this to be <laughs> frivolous it's really an enjoyable everybody meets everybody they line up they have their cheeks swabbed um, this, these could be community events where people didn't know each other to start with and um, it's, it's really a different way of approaching Alzheimer's disease where it's not just our frail seniors who are already you know, very disabled by the disease who are asking to give more. We're saying healthy people, you can now do something to help move the field forward. Well, and, you know, I can see where that would be a positive, fun experience, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're being proactive and then just seeing other people being proactive. I mean, it just kind of ignites um, a synergy and a passion that you know we can we can make a difference. So that that whole power of one, I think, has gotten uh, people forget how important they are um, in our world, and and their choices matter. And so uh, that's I, th- I think that's great. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Now you're located in Toronto. Is that available in the U.S. at all? It is. Yeah, so um, having a cheek swab done is something that can be done at an Alzheimer's uh, clinic, uh, um, clinics that run clinical trials. 
So usually these are memory clinics or Alzheimer's research centers. But again, we're talking here about prevention, so people can have a cheek swab even if they don't have memory problems, even if they're not actually needing the services of a memory clinic, but they want to come forward and participate in prevention research. So yes, there are many centers um, across the United States who would offer this, and the actual research project with the intervention for people who have this high-risk gene um, is run in partnership with the Banner Institute, so they're in Arizona, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the NIH, and Novartis and Amgen, so it's really a public-private collaboration and an international study, U.S., Canada, and other countries as well. Wonderful. Now, is that is that a cost that's covered by insurance or as part of the trial or is that an out-of-pocket um, expense to people uh, to, to get involved Great with that? Great question. It is covered by the research grants. So there's no cost to participants. So cost is not a barrier. But, you know, how would people know? So I'm glad you're asking me and I can I can let people know. This is free and painless. And if people are willing to do this, Hats off to you. You know, yeah. again, we don't twist anybody's arm. People need to want to do it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that there are so many people who would want to do something if they knew there was something they could do. And so providing the opportunity is really what we've done in Toronto. And we, as, as I said before, we were just blown away at how many people would line up. The first event we went to, we didn't bring enough swabs. <laughs> we were yeah. sending people away because after 100 people, we had run out. So we learned. <laughs> Gosh, I'm just thinking about it. I do, um, I, I go around the, the country and speak here. And, and one of the things that I also do is a um, movie um, screening of His Neighbor Phil, which is all about the, the caring experience um, that families go through. And I just think, oh, that would just like be a perfect time to almost set up a little station because you've got all these families that are pulling together, you know, watching this experience. And then it would give them an option to be able to find out something like that um, and be able to participate. Because yeah. I, I do think a lot of times people don't know how to reach out or how to find these things or, you know, are they even available? And, you know, um, many, if they haven't had disease in their family, they don't even know what a clinical trial is because they haven't needed to know. <laughs> you know? That's, and, that's and so, so true. And I, I love the education you're providing through your show because, um, even though the science is moving forward, the opportunities are greater than they ever were. If people don't know, then how, how do we you know, make that bridge? So, yeah, we need to get the word out and uh, a lot of positive messages that are very yeah. worthwhile that people can easily relate to. We say to people, you know, do this for mom or dad. Do it for your kids. And um, that resonates, you know. Nobody wants mm -hmm. their children to have to struggle with Alzheimer's. They'll have enough problems to deal with in the world, and, and we don't need that disease around. Exactly, exactly. Now, you know, one of the things that um, seems to be, and, you know, I'm a novice at all of this, so bear with me, but it seems like there's more research being shared between um basically opponents, you know, in competition in terms mm -hmm. of lessons learned. Is that true? That is very true. That is very true. There's something called the pre-competitive space. It's sort of a fancy word for let's share information, let's work together. Yes, of course, you want to have the winning compound or I want to have it. But 
If we don't learn from each other, we're going to repeat each other's mistakes. We're going to learn the hard way. It's going to take a lot longer for anyone to have a breakthrough. And so there is a lot more sharing amongst pharmaceutical companies and biotech, but not just that. There's a lot of partnering between public and private organizations, charitable organizations, foundations, academia, and industry. So we need to go that way. Just the way in your intro to the show, you talked about the collaborative approach really being so important and hats off to so many people who are doing their piece in the field. And now in the research space, we need this collaboration also to be full force. Well, yeah, and the cost alone, I I would think that that would help keep that down because um, the cost to push any drug trial forward is just uh, astronomical. And I I don't think people understand necessarily the process you guys have to go through and and the cost to bear with that. And when our when our when our technology that can benefit several trials, you know, a technology that could be shared could, you know, prevent one um, group of uh, trialists from having to reinvent a similar thing. So, you know, if there's a cognitive test that's particularly sensitive or a blood test in the future that's going to be the best way to diagnose, why should these be kept in silos? You know, we all need to benefit from these things. Yeah, great. Now, what do you think is next, uh, you know, um, for Alzheimer's disease? Are we likely to see more detection and prevention trials coming out? You know, in the news, you, you kind of sometimes hear this doom and gloom and you almost feel like, ah, they're they're all going to stop because they're not they're not making the headway they want. And they're, you know, not. so what do you see for trials? I don't see a trial slowing down. I think we will continue to see more prevention studies, so studies going very early in the disease process or even before disease sets in, uh, in healthy populations. But we can't abandon the people who have disease and are needing care. So even if we had a prevention approved tomorrow and could stop new cases of Alzheimer's, we still have 50 million people in the world with the disease and families looking after them who need treatment and care. So we're still going to need to treat symptoms. Um, So prevention, um, medicines that will slow down the disease or arrest it once it gets started, and treatments that intervene with symptoms, so prevent people from being agitated, depressed, uh, improve memory, whatever symptoms we're targeting, those are all going to be necessary. Unfortunately, there are studies looking at that full spectrum of Alzheimer's from before the disease to the late stage of disease. We don't want to abandon people who, just because they are now severe, uh, you know, and we're thinking early prevention. We don't want to abandon these folks and say there's nothing for them. So part of my job as an Alzheimer's clinical trialist is to remind uh, people in the drug development business that there are people with substantial symptoms who still need treatment. And that yeah. quality of life, even for somebody who has late-stage Alzheimer's, quality of life can be poor or it can be good. And family mm-hmm. support can be poor or it can be good and we need we need to attend to all of these facets yeah i i agree and there's you're hearing a lot more conversation about cure versus care and i think there has to be a balance you know with all of uh, with all Mm -hmm. of those and um i've been glad to see you know some of the studies taking in 
to some things that, um, you know, social engagement in music and different things that might not be necessarily pharma related. There seems to be a little bit more, um, I don't want to say necessarily balance coming in, but different alternatives as well. Um, with that that can help reduce symptoms in the meantime while we're still working on trying to find a cure and uh, I I think um, anyways from my engagement when I talk with people around the world that is much appreciated that that it's kind of a holistic and we're looking at all the angles or trying to include all of the angles these days um, in terms yeah, of dealing with so important. Mm-hmm. You know, lifestyle yeah. strategies, uh, yeah, all of that. I, I completely agree. There's, a, you know, and even in terms of the medicines, it may be in the end we need a cocktail of, of medicines that's not going to be one treatment, but, you know, similar yep. to how we deal with high blood pressure or cancer, there's often two or three medicines combined that actually have a substantial impact. Um, and then, of course, you know, the non-pharmacologic uh, approaches are so important. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, and it's it's hard, too, with stuff like that, because, you know, we finally have people making the statement and I think believing when they've met one person with dementia, they've met one, which, you know, basically just states everybody's an individual. Everyone's going to respond a little bit differently. Everyone's got, you know, their own kind of magical, you know, health profile <laughs> that, that changes, <laughs> um, you know, as life changes and stuff. And so uh, there's just so many elements in terms of trying to get this right. And um, I, I'm seeing, you know, around the world more of a toolbox approach versus a, a one-way or the highway approach um, with mm-hmm. with trying to deal with, with uh, both symptoms and, and cure along the way, which I think is really healthy. Um, because not only is it just one person with dementia, but then we've got one care partner. They're all individuals, and then our environments change. So, I mean, it's just it's a moving target, you know, all the time. And mm-hmm. um, I think I, I like the idea personally of, of being fluid and being open to, you know, looking at things in with new eyes and in new ways and, and the creativity. I mean, I... I hear of some of the studies and I'm just like, how did they even think to go there? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just like, wow. <laughs> um, but but mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's great. You know, I think that's what's needed to, to move forward. Is there anything that we've missed that you would like to, um, to tell us about um, regarding the trials at all? I think you've done a great job of asking you know, broad questions, and we've covered a lot. I would, again, encourage people, if they're interested in finding out about clinical trials, that they approach either their you know, local Alzheimer's Association chapter or a local memory clinic. Um, our, our family physicians, our colleagues in family medicine, sadly, don't necessarily know about what's going on in the field, and that's not uh, to minimize them in any way. It's a very specialized area, and we haven't done as good a job as we need to in the future to reach out to people and provide them, you know, the, the actual way to contact research centers when it comes to, mm-hmm. to memory problems or Alzheimer's prevention. So I think we need to work on that in the future. But meanwhile, 
as I've said before, anybody who's concerned about their memory or who wants to be part of this movement towards prevention should contact their local memory clinic or just look up you know, Alzheimer's clinical trials and see what's local in their area because there are a lot of uh, clinical trial centers in the U.S. and around the world, and, and let's keep them busy. Let's move the yeah. field forward. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but there is a um, new resource directory specific to dementia that's just being beta tested right now. It's called Care to Plan. And if if people want to go to my website, Alzheimer's Speaks, and then just click on the resource directory link, you can get you can um, click on the graphic and it'll bring you to the the beta test for this. Um, or if if you're a um, a company or have some type of resource, if it's trials or a community or educational information or whatever, um, you can also become a member, which is very economical. It's like $99 for the year. Um, and there's no fee, of course, when they're in beta testing. <clears throat> but it it links people directly to you, so there's no middleman. It's really easy to find. They're just in the process of um, defining and refining subcategories and geo-searches, but people will be able to um, you know, uh, share these files, and then anyone who is a member who has a card in this directory, which um, Mayo and NIH and, and CDC um, are some of the content builders um, in it, um, you actually can have a portal then um, for your website for that $99 a year, which is just absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah, this is something that that I think would be really helpful for the trials to get on because people sometimes go to the trial sites and they're they can just get a little overwhelmed. And if you can personalize yours, and um, I think it just makes it would make it a little bit easier for for the general public um, to know. But I I have not seen a a real thorough dementia specific resource before, so I'm I'm I, it's something I've wanted since. You know, when my mom had dementia, which was, you know, 35 years ago, um, to to help guide me because people just don't get all that information. One question I would like to ask you, though, if you don't mind, is can you can all. you tell people a little bit about, since we've got some time, a little bit about the Toronto um, Memory Program? Would you mind sharing what all you do there? Sure, not at all. So we are a... Um community-based, that means not within a hospital and and not within a university setting. We're a community-based memory clinic and research center, and we are devoted entirely to Alzheimer's disease and related cognitive problems. We are composed of about 30 staff. We have about eight physicians um, and um, research staff, clinic staff. We have a memory clinic where we diagnose and treat people and link people to resources, people who have memory problems, Alzheimer's disease, or other reasons for dementia. And we have our clinical trials program where we run at any given time between 15 and 20 different clinical trials. These are treatment studies. These are studies that are part of an international uh, program of trials. So the studies run here are often run also at other centers around the world. And um, we've been doing this for over 25 years. We are Canada's largest Alzheimer's clinical trial center. And we 
have the most active uh, memory clinic as well. So over 1,500 individuals each year are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in our clinic. Um, we're trying to reach out to as many people to help with early diagnosis and treatment opportunities rather than let people kind of smolder and go without medical care, end up in crisis in, uh, you know, emergency rooms and things that are so tragic and unnecessary with this disease. So um, that's a, a little bit about us. We're a very dedicated uh, group of individuals, and most of my staff are about half of my age, and I'm just thrilled at how these young folks who work with me really get it, that this is an important disease and uh, respect, dignity, and perseverance is, is the way we're going to manage and move the field forward. Wonderful. Well, I so appreciate your time with us today. I, I've just found this to be a really interesting conversation. And even when you just mentioned about your clinical trials are are um, hooked up with others around the world. So I, I think a lot of times our, our audience and, and the general public doesn't know. They think that all these trials are little isolated bits and pieces, and yet again, it mm-hmm. just shows how you're working together to, you know, to um, gather information and research to, to move the cause forward, which is fantastic. So um, I thank you so much. Now, if people want to get thank you, Lauren in touch with you, they can go to your website, which is the Toronto memory program dot com. And then I also I also have a uh, phone number, which is uh, 416-386-9767. That's 416-386-9761. Is there any other information that you wanted to give out? That's perfect. Yeah, we welcome people, you know, traffic through our website uh, or phone calls, and you can speak to someone directly. Um, Yeah, we're very eager to help people, and if we don't have what someone's looking for or if the geography is not ideal, we'll find a place to link you to. So we're we're very uh, interested in helping people get answers. Thank you so much for letting people know about us. Well, again, I appreciate your time and all you're doing, and I and I love those celebrations that you're doing. I just, I, I really think <laughs> yes, that we'll that. do more of those. We'll do I, more I, of yeah. those. That, that, yeah. that was really good. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, well, I, I love when there's a, a positive piece of cohesion pulling everybody together who's worked together, uh, and I think in this fast-paced world, we don't always stop to appreciate that, and I think that's such a value add. And so kudos to you guys for doing that. So thank you again so much, uh, Dr. Cohen. Uh, I can't, uh, uh, it was just a great conversation. And it it was a hopeful one um, with all the different angles that you talked about. And I I think our audience will really appreciate it. Um, In wrapping up, I just want to give a shout out to Calendar Cards, which is a memory system uh, that helps people manage their lives independently. And one of the things that I just adore about calendar cards is that they have also put together a memory cafe directory. Uh, it was just for the U.S., but now they've expanded into other countries because uh, they've just done such a great job with it. And so you can go to memorycafedirectory.com to see if there's a memory cafe 
in your area, or if you want to register your cafe free, they would be more than glad to do that. And uh, when you go there, you'll be able to uh, access the calendar cards. And and just for your knowledge, calendar and cards are both spelt with a, a K. And last, I want to give a call out to Purple Table Reservations. Uh, they are just a, a unique app, and they are out there um, soliciting restaurants to come on board and train their staff and um, serve their clientele that have dementia or maybe they have post-traumatic stress, maybe they're dealing with autism. It's, you know, so much of, of the needs overlap. And so they will train uh, you on how to train your staff to serve them better. Um, if it's uh, making a modified menu, uh, where to seat somebody so it's not as noisy and better light and um, how, to, how to read body language, all of those types of things. So you can check out purpletables.com for further information. In the meantime, all have a blessed week. And uh, again, always feel free to like, click, and share. We appreciate you as our audience. Bye now. Hi everyone, this is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me, listen now, search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.